And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. I always kind of dread preaching about suffering because preaching is a lot like throwing a a boomerang. You throw it at the congregation, but before it hits them, it comes back and whacks you in the head first. And, you know, who wants to be hit with the thought of rejoicing in in your trials? I'd rather not have to practice what I preach on this topic. But trials, they are a fact of living in this fallen world. So we all need to see what God's Word tells us about how to handle them. The problem is the biblical approach to trials is just plain nuts. It doesn't make a bunch of sense to us. Paul says that he rejoices in his tribulations. Now, maybe we could explain him away as being a bit over the top, but then what do we do with Jesus? In Matthew 5, he tells us, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all manner of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. (laughs) There it is. For your reward in heaven is great. But it says not Paul and Jesus. James, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can encounter various trials, knowing that their testing of your faith produces endurance. Peter is of the same mind. In 1 Peter 4, he says, But to the, deg- to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you were reviled for the name of Christ, you were blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, you, when you trace the behavior of the apostles uh, through the book of Acts, you discover that they actually practice this strange response to trials. When the Jewish Sanhedrin flogged the apostles, here's what we read in Acts 5, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. When Paul and Silas were illegally beaten, imprisoned, and fastened into the stocks there in Philippi, we read, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The author of Hebrews, he reminded his readers in Hebrews 10, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Let's think about that for a second. They joyfully received or accepted the seizure of their property, knowing that you, them, have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So we can't escape the fact that this strange response of rejoicing in trials, it is the uniform teaching of the New Testament. But if you're like me, you'll admit that it's not your standard response. Uh, some of us may not may be able to say that we don't complain about the, our trials, right? We grit our teeth and we stoically endure them. A few may be able to say that you usually rejoice in spite of your trials. But how many of us can honestly say that we rejoice in our trials? So we all have something to learn here. 
Paul is continuing to enumerate the blessings of being justified by faith that he started last week in verses 1 and 2. And that's seen by his words, and not only this. So he's continuing. He's probably answering an unexpressed objection to his teaching in verses 1 and 2. Somebody may be saying, Paul, you say that you have peace with God and that you now stand in His grace. You rejoice in the future hope of the glory of God. But why doesn't God protect you from trials right now? If you're the object of His love and grace, shouldn't you be enjoying a trouble-free life? So Paul is showing why God brings trials into the lives of His saints. It's because through the trials, Paul says, we grow in endurance, character, and hope. And our hope will not disappoint because even now God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, by the way, note that Paul mentions the three persons of the Trinity there in verses 1 through 5. We have peace with God, that's the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says that God has given us His Spirit. Each person of the Trinity plays a role in our salvation and preservation as God's children. Now, in our text, Paul is saying we can rejoice in trials if we develop God's perspective and keep in mind that trials do not nullify God's great love for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we just uh, bow the knee, uh, admitting that we're in need of your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to uh, explain these truths to us. Father, I pray that you would take the words that I speak and just uh, open them up for us to be able to see what it means to rejoice in trials and why we should actually rejoice in trials. That should be our natural reaction. Help us, Father, this morning because we need it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a couple of major points here. Number one, to rejoice in trials... Develop and maintain God's perspective. He is using trials to shape our character and to prepare us for heaven. Now, regarding, regarding rejoicing in our tribulations, Thomas Schreiner, he says, This is an, an astonishing statement since future glorification all right, is prized precisely because afflictions are left behind. Do you understand what he's saying? It's so crazy that we are in our, in our current state, we are to rejoice in our trials when our final hope is that we'll be with Jesus in His presence and there will be no more trials. But while we're here, we're going to have trials. And our job is to rejoice in them. Now, to get a handle on what Paul means and how we can grow in this strange virtue... Let's, let's, let's explore four particular thoughts. Number one, A, rejoicing in trials is not an automatic response. <laughs> it requires deliberate focus. If rejoicing in trials were automatic, then we'd see multitudes of people rejoicing because nobody lacks trials. Instead, we see multitudes complaining about their trials. Even among Christians, grumbling about trials is far more common than rejoicing in them. Now, the word literally uh, is, is boasting in or glorying in. Whether it's being caught in a traffic, a traffic jam when you're late for an appointment or something more major, like being diagnosed with cancer, our knee-jerk reaction is to complain, not to rejoice. We see this with the children of Israel over and over again. Do you remember after the Exodus, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt by inflicting these plagues on the Egyptians. And then He parts the Red Sea and, and they walk across and get to the other side. And then the, the, uh, the Egyptian army tries to come and, and God kills them by just drowning them and, and closing the waters up. 
There in Exodus 15, Israel celebrated God's miraculous salvation with singing and dancing. And then we read, they went three days into the wilderness and they found only bitter water. Now, did they rejoice saying, all right, let's see how God is going to provide for us now? No. There at the end of Exodus 15, it says, So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And the Lord, of course, told Moses how to make the water drinkable, and he did. But in the very next chapter, we read that the whole congregation is grumbling again, saying they should have stayed back there in Egypt. At least there they had food that they could eat. So God graciously provided manna daily, every day, for them. But then as they traveled across the desert, in spite of God's provision, they grumbled again about having no water. Their history for those 40 years was that of constant complaining, in spite of God's gracious provision. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually uses their story as a warning to us, so that we will not grumble in our trials as they did. Now, in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Paul exhorts us to follow the example he set when he was falsely accused, beaten, and wrongly imprisoned in Philippi. It's the one I just read a few minutes ago from Acts 16. But now in Philippians, he's addressing and he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now I want you to think about this. That's the truth. We live in a grumbling world. If we, as believers, don't grumble, in fact, if, if we are cheerful and even rejoice in those trials, whether it's the minor irritations at work or it's some uh, a major trial in your personal life, we're going to shine like lights in the darkness. Now, in Acts 16, uh, Paul and Silas, they, they cast his, Paul cast this demon out of a girl. And so they, they have some false accusations brought against them. And they're, they're, they're beaten and they're imprisoned. And it says at about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. You know what the next verse says? And the prisoners were listening. How about that? What a testimony. They don't know what's going on. They know that there's two guys down here that are rejoicing, that are, that are praying and they're singing hymns to their God. Now, who else do we know that was listening? <laughs> the Philippian jailer. God brings earthquake. They're all leased, are released of their, or their, their binds and what have you. And he comes running in. He is thinking of taking his life because he's assuming that they've all scattered. The prisoners are gone. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're all here. We're all here. And he falls down before Paul and Silas and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Do you understand that that came out of them rejoicing in their trials? If we do that today, guess what? We are going to be that light in the world because that, I'm sorry, that is abnormal. That is supernatural. That is God doing something through you and in you that you cannot produce in yourself. But we're to try. We're to rejoice in those trials. And it doesn't happen automatically. It requires deliberate focus. Well, B, rejoicing in trials does not mean denying the pain. The Bible doesn't encourage us to deny reality, to put on a, a, a happy face and pretend that we're just praising the Lord, when in fact, we're hurting terribly inside. In fact, later in Romans 12, Paul says we are to weep with those who weep. 
He doesn't say, okay, tell those who are weeping to stop weeping and to start rejoicing in their trials. No. Rejoicing in trials does not mean denying the pain. Uh, this morning, uh, I was talking to Miss Charlotte right here. When, when was this, Miss Charlotte? You just found out on the way here. Her younger brother was found dead. They don't know, it's not exactly sure why. That's a trial that's going to cause hurt in that family, she says, particularly for her mother who is still living. So, yeah, we, we all go through those trials. And Miss, Miss Charlotte, we're going to be praying for you and your family. His name was Bill. Just rem be remembering the family. He was just found dead. Well, yeah, rejoicing in trials does not mean denying the pain. Paul acknowledges attention when he describes himself in 2 Corinthians 6 as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He goes on to describe how uh, in his trials, his emotions were just all over the place. But he had God's comfort. Undergirding all of his trials was genuine joy in the Lord. Now, the author of Hebrews, he recognizes the same tension. In chapter 12, he says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Don't you want to just go, duh? Discipline doesn't seem joyful in the moment, he says, but, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, see the same thing in the book of Psalms. The, the psalmist is in a situation where he despairs of life itself. His enemies are actually trying to kill him. Sometimes he even questions uh, where God is or, or why God delays. He expresses his anguish, his pain, as he cries out to the Lord. But by the end of the psalm, even though he's still in grave danger, he is filled with joy and praise to God. We see that quite a few times in the psalms. So there's nothing wrong with feeling sorrow or pain or grief in the midst of a difficult trial. We shouldn't deny these feelings in an attempt to look more spiritual. But through our tears, through our pain, we should be sustained by our hope in the promises of God. We know that He is sovereign over all things and that He cares for us. Rejoicing in our tribulations does not mean denying the pain. We'll see rejoicing in trials is possible when we keep, it, keep in mind that God is using these trials to shape our character. After mentioning rejoicing in his sufferings, Paul continues, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, I don't want you to miss that word knowing. This is part of that deliberate focus that I just mentioned in, in the first one, in the, in the A part of this, this sermon. Our mental focus, it must include some vital knowledge, namely that God is using the trials that we're undergoing to shape our character if we submit joyfully to Him. Now, not everyone grows in the way that Paul describes here. We'll grow only if we submit joyfully to God because we keep in mind that He is sovereign and that He is using these trials to actually make us more like Christ. Now, note the chain of thought here. Suffering brings about endurance. Now, John Calvin, he points out that you don't need endurance if you're not feeling distressful and sorrowful. But, he adds, when you regard your trials as dispensed from a kind father for your good, you feel great comfort. Uh, when you know that God is promoting your salvation, you have a reason for rejoicing. 
So Paul's point is, you don't develop endurance unless you go through trials. You don't have to endure when everything is going your way. It's not difficult to trust in the Lord, uh, you know, uh, when you're experiencing nothing but blessings. But here's a question. Will you endure by faith when life is hard? Will you trust God? Will you submit to His mighty hand when you lose your job? Or when you go through a hard time in your marriage? Or when you're diagnosed with a serious disease? Now, I'm going to brag on, on, on Miss Wyvonne. Many of you all know, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, she was diagnosed with uh, bladder cancer. And just in talking to that from the very beginning, she says, it's almost, it's almost routine now. The first words out of her mouth is, God is in control. He knows what He's doing. She's not doubting God. She's actually glorifying God in her trial. That's what we're talking about here. So, Paul continues, he says, endurance produces character. Character. This is a single word in Greek that means something has kind of passed the test. Test. It comes out approved. Now, Ford Motor Company, I didn't know this, but they operate several proving grounds worldwide. Uh, and it's for development and validation testing of new vehicles. Now, once their trucks pass the test, they can confidently say that their trucks are built Ford tough. Boom! And the thing hits, you know, from the commercial. Right? They've proven the character of that truck. Well, when you go through a trial trusting in God, your faith becomes proven. You've been through the test and you've passed. You know by experience that you can lean on His faithfulness. It proves that you're not just a flash-in-the-pan Christian like that seed that was sown on the shallow ground. It, 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 it grew quickly, but then faded as soon as trials came. Endurance works proven character. Then Paul adds that character produces hope. This brings us back full circle to verse 2, where we who have been justified by faith, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's the same hope, but now it's stronger it works like this. The initial hope comes from understanding the blessing of being justified by faith. So we begin the Christian life full of faith, full of hope. Then we get hit by some difficult trials, whatever they may be. We cling to God, cling to God like we've never clung before. We prove His faithfulness, and He develops proven character in us as we endure. Now we come out on the other side more so certain of the hope of eternal glory with Him than we were before the trials. Our hope is stronger because it has been tempered in the flames of affliction. And that leads to the last point under this heading. D, rejoicing in trials requires developing and remembering our hope of heaven. Our joy is not a trouble-free life now. Uh, excuse me, our hope. Our hope is not a trouble-free life now, but rather in a glorious, trouble-free eternity. To rejoice in our present trials, we have to keep our focus on the hope of the glory of God, which we will experience in heaven. Now, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. 
Because the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now Paul could maintain hope and not lose heart in what he describes as momentary light affliction because his focus was on the eternal hope of heaven. Now, just read in 2 Corinthians 11 there and listen to Paul say, yeah, five times I, I, went, I had 40 lashes, 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was beaten by the rods, like beaten with rods. Likely that was uh, the Romans. That's what they did. Uh, he was stoned to death. And he just, he details this. And what does he call it? Momentary light affliction. Just letting that sink in. Now, critics are going to say that Christianity is, is just pie in the sky when you die. The answer to that charge is, yes, you're going to die. <laughs> Would you like pie with that or not? Your decaying outer man, which is what Paul's talking about here, that, that's our graying and thinning hair, failing eyesight and hearing, increasing aches and pains. They're broadcasting a clear message to your brain. By the way, it's a brain that can't remember anything anymore. But here's the message. You're dying. You're dying. Either you have the hope of heaven because you have trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive all your sins, or you have no hope. The only way to rejoice in trials is to develop and remember the sure hope of heaven. It's certain because it's based on Jesus' resurrection and His promise to return and take us to be with Him. Now Paul adds, And hope does not put us to shame. That phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist, in great distress, he cries out, In you, talking to God, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, that last phrase, not disappointed, literally it's were not put to shame. In Psalm 25, 3, David proclaims, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Now, the, the idea is this. If you trust in God and He fails, you're going to be put to shame. Others are going to mock and say, Oh, he trusted in God, but God didn't come through. What a joke. There is no reality in trusting God. Now, Psalm 22 is a picture of Christ on the cross. His murderers, they're gloating in His death. And sometimes God permits His children to go through terrible persecution and martyrdom. They're only vindicated in the final resurrection. So if heaven is not true, we will be put to eternal shame. We will be eternally disappointed. But if it is true and the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that it is, <laughs> then even if we suffer per persecution and a martyr's death, our hope will not put us to shame. We'll wear that victor's crown in the glory of heaven throughout all of eternity. So to, to rejoice in trials, develop and maintain God's perspective. He's using the trials that He's put us in to shape our character and to prepare us for heaven. But again, a critic may ask, what about God's love? If God really loves you, wouldn't He spare you all of these trials? Well, number two, to rejoice in trials, we must keep in mind that the trials do not nullify God's great love for us. 
Now, the reason that hope does not disappoint is because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, Paul is talking here about God's love for us. And that's what verses 6 and 8 make plain. He didn't see suffering as an indication that God does not love us. Quite the contrary. As he's going to show at the end of Romans 8, neither tribulation nor distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword can separate us from God's great love. Keep your focus on God's love and you can rejoice in trials. Paul says that, that, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the perfect tense of poured into, that indicates a past action that has ongoing and ongoing and ongoing results. Um, it, it, it especially points to God's great love as we experience it at the time that we are saved. Now, given points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer at the moment of salvation. And because the Holy Spirit is God, it means that God Himself comes to dwell in our hearts. The Spirit makes us aware of God's great love in sending His own Son to die for our sins. Now, when He says that He's poured into, that implies an abundant, continued supply of His love, refreshing and sustaining us, especially in our trials. Now, this experience of God's love, it comes to us as we meditate on the truth of the gospel. We remember that the Father gave His eternal Son, who willingly took the punishment that we deserved so that God can be, a couple things, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. We saw that back in chapter 3. As Charles Wesley put it, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Don't ever get over the wonder of it. Let the Spirit wash you daily in the amazing love of God. Now, did Jesus' trials even hint that the Father did not love Him? Of course not, and neither do yours. To rejoice in trials, drink deeply of God's great love, poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit that He gave to you. Well, James Boyce, he finishes his sermon on these verses by talking about the church in China. And he notes how they grew exponentially during the terrible persecution of communism. On, on uh, well, let me think, Sunday nights, we're looking in the book of Acts. And what we've seen over and over again is that the persecution that the early church um, experienced, that was the growth mechanism of the church. <laughs> it, it, it scattered believers everywhere. And what did they do? Just tell people about Jesus. Church were popping up all over uh, what we would call the Middle East today. So, um, uh, I can't think of his name now. Let me look again. Oh, yeah, uh, James Boyce. Uh, he notes how they grew exponentially during this terrible persecution of the communists. Now, an American student, an American student was going to Hong Kong, and he was going to study the Chinese church. And before he left the States, a friend asked him, Now, if God loves the Chinese church so much, why did he allow so much suffering to come upon it? And the student who was going had no, no answer. He was kind of baffled. But after he had traveled to China and had take, talked in depth with many Christian, uh, Chinese Christians, he decided to go back to America and ask his friend a question. He said, if God loves the American church so much, why hasn't he allowed it to suffer like the church in China? 
Now that's a good question. That is a valid question because trials are not designed to harm us. Rather, God uses them to shape us into the image of God. Right? In chapter 8, he says we are being conformed into the image of Christ. He uses, it, he uses these trials to strengthen our hope of heaven. Trials, they are a part of the all things that work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Even as strange as it may seem, we can rejoice in our trials. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's not an easy word this morning. Uh, Lord, we look at our own lives and, and we see complaining, we see grumbling. And Father, when in fact we should be rejoicing because you are simply uh, conforming us into the image of your Son. You're preparing us for what lies ahead. Uh, God, we thank you for that. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to rejoice. In our rejoicing, we will be lights in this world that cannot be put out. So, Father, give us that desire, Father, to simply rejoice at all times. As Paul would say, and again I say, rejoice. Help us to do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to give you a chance to respond this morning. Just going to sing a song of invitation. Uh, if the Lord is working in your heart, I encourage you to come talk to me about it. Maybe that you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you understand that you are a sinner. That's, that's, that's the, 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 red, the red line that goes through Scripture is not too difficult. God created everything perfect. <laughs> Man sinned. It fell into disrepair. Okay? Everything. Creation us included. Now we're separated from God because of that sin. And because of sin in our own lives, we are separated from God. And there's only one remedy for that separation, and that's to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life. He is a fit sacrifice for your sins because He never sinned. And this is, this is what He did on the cross. And then to validate it, God rose Him from the dead. Where now He has ascended to heaven, He is seated at the right hand of the Father. All you have to do is admit your sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner, God. I need help. I need you. I need your Son, Jesus Christ. I need what He did for me on the cross. You trust in Jesus for your eternity rather than yourself. In the West, man, we are built to take care of ourselves. And unfortunately, that's a difficult thing to overcome. But when you understand your sinfulness and the fact that you need Jesus, that's when you turn to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust Jesus and what He has accomplished on my behalf. He'll make you His child today. If you realize that about yourself, that you need Jesus, you come forward and you tell me. You talk to me about it. We'll, we'll spend some time in the Word looking at what, what God says about it. If you're a believer, uh, this is a challenging sermon because how many up there out there have some sort of trial that you're going through? Some now it's on a, it's on a sliding scale, right? Some of us have little ones, some of us have big ones, some of us have monumental ones going on in our lives right now that we would just not assume not face if we didn't have to. In all of those situations, if we can rejoice, if we can do simply what Miss Wybon says, okay, and she didn't say it overjoyed, but she said, God is in control. My gosh, what a comfort that is. How many of you would like to be in control? My hand, go no, my hand goes down real quick. I know I'd mess things up real quick. 
I'm glad God is in control. And, and I'm super glad that Satan is not in control. God is. I hope you're walking that way so that when you go out today and you think about the trial that's in your life or two or three or ten or whatever they are, that you remember, if I can just glorify God in these trials, I'm going to be a very bright light in this world of darkness. They're going to look at you and say, what's the matter with you? And you can say, well, I just understand that God is in control and I'm trusting Him. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to say. We need to be doing that. That will be a light in the world that cannot be denied. Great testimony. So I'm just challenging you as a believer today in your trials. Do your best to glorify God. Rejoice. Because regardless, regardless of the trial, guess what? He's still seated on the throne. Should we not worship Him as such, even in our trials? Yes, we should. Well, if you'd like to join our church, I'll just encourage you to come forward. We're going to sing a song of invitation, and we'll do a little bit of paperwork. We had those three young men last week come and join, and uh, we're glad. We're going to be doing some baptisms here over the next few weeks. Looking forward to that. Uh, God is working in our students, and uh, just praise God, God for that. But if God is speaking to you this morning, I want you guys to go ahead and stand. If, if He's speaking to you, you come and you share it with me. I want to call your attention to these. These are they're black and they have a row. It says thinking clearly after row. These are written by John Stenberger. John Stenberger is the CEO, president or whatever of the Florida Family Policy Council. It's kind of a watchdog, a political watchdog for the state of Florida, a Christian political watchdog. And he was at a conference shortly after Roe was overturned. And somebody there said, OK, John, what now? And it just made him think, okay, yeah, there are steps that have to be taken. Well, this little book breaks it down. I encourage you to come get one. We're going to leave them up here. We've got about 40 of them. It's just a five-step thing, things that you should know and be thinking about in wake of the fact that, whoa, whoa, Roe was overturned. It's going to be a big deal in the state of Florida, okay? And uh, we happen to have a majority conservative Supreme Court. Now's the time to act. But this is just informational. It's for you to kind of think about this, maybe some ways that you could be involved in this aftermath of Roe being overturned. What does that mean for us now? So that's right up here. Just come grab one. If you know somebody that you want to give one to, take two or three. That's fine. We just want to get this information out. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.